you, Todd. Thank you, team, for leading us so well today. I want to go back in time, spring break 2007. In case you're concerned, this is the family version of spring break 2007, not a uh, young and crazy 2007. This is the Hagers in 2007 who decided to take a family vacation to Big Bend, way down in South Texas. We had three boys at the time, and Serena was pregnant with Lucy, and in that phase of the pregnancy where we thought we could just sneak in one last trip. So we loaded up the minivan, and we drove for nine hours, 575 miles, and never left the state of Texas, all the way down to Big Bend. And one of my favorite parts of the drive, if there is anything fun or a favorite about being in a minivan with three boys, a pregnant wife, and a dog, it's the last 97 miles of the journey. Now, what's significant about the last 97 miles is uh, you've driven for eight hours, and you've arrived at the town of Marathon, Texas, population 450, and Marathon sits on the edge of the earth. At least that's what it feels like. And then from Marathon, you get back in your car and you drive 97 miles south to the little town of Terlingua. And if you thought you were at the edge of the earth in Marathon, you know you have reached the edge of the earth in Terlingua. Terlingua boasts a population of 58 in fact, they say they're really a village and not a town. And as you're driving there, that 97 miles, chances are you will not see another car the entire way. And you begin to realize how unusual it is for us to go so far and so long without seeing another person, either going or coming back. And then you get to Terlingua, and it's this really weird little town. Uh, and you realize that this is where people go when they want no one to find them. It's a bizarre place. By a show of hands, how many of you have been to Terlingua before? One, two, well, we got about five or six. First hour had like 15, so they must be more traveled or have more to hide than you wanting to get away. So, now, not by a show of hands. Has anyone been to spiritual Terlingua? By that I mean you've been to a place or a time where you didn't want anyone to find you. Maybe you were so ashamed, felt so unworthy, that there was that one thing, that hundreds of things, that thousands of things that make you unlovable unreachable, and beyond hope. That's what our text is going to show us today, is what happens when you meet Jesus in Terlingua. So turn with me to John chapter 4. Turn or click. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, and our text today is the entire chapter 4, which has 54 verses. But I'm not going to preach 54 verses. I'm actually only going to preach 35. You know, when I told Serena, she asked, hey, what are you preaching this week? I said, John 4, 54 verses. 
she audibly groaned. So thank you for keeping your groan inside and not making me feel bad. Um, I'm thankful for that. But while you're turning or clicking to John 4, I'll give you a preview of how to narrow down, how I'm going to narrow down this chapter to just 35 verses. And it's by doing this. It's by focusing only on two characters in this story, the Samaritan woman and Jesus. It's not that there's not a lot of great stuff happening here. There's not, it's not that there's not a ton of historical context and Old Testament ties that we could talk about. But if I tried to cover all 54 verses, it would be like flying an airplane over a city and claiming that we'd actually visited. So what I want to do is I want to land several times, get around, walk around, visit, so that we can say that we have been to John chapter 4. The passage tells us a lot about ourselves, as Scripture always does, and it tells us about Jesus. But I want to focus on four things that we learn about Jesus and divide the passage up that way. The first six verses of the chapter set the stage for the story and what I'm calling graciously intentional. 7 through 15 is graciously relational. 16 through 30 is graciously revealing. And then 39, 42, the grand finale, gracious Savior. Jesus is graciously intentional, graciously relational, graciously revealing, and our gracious Savior. Hope you picked up on the theme there. So let's pick up in verse 3, and I'll read until verse 6. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus and his disciples are traveling back to Galilee, and the text says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Now this route does happen to be the shortest way back to Galilee, but the ultra-observant Jews of that day would have avoided this route at all costs because it would have been likely that they would come into contact with the unclean Samaritans. And they'd be defiled by touching them or eating their food or drinking their water. The region of Samaria had originally been part of Israel, and when the kingdom split, the northern kingdom, which is often referred to as Israel, became ultimately Samaria. So this was the first part of the kingdom to break away. So these folks were rebels. And as they rebelled politically, they also rebelled theologically. They began to worship other gods, to take on the gods of the land. So God, the God, sent the Assyrians as his instrument of judgment and they conquered Samaria and pulled all the people of significance. All the royalty, all the wealthy, all the skilled. And they left behind the folks who they didn't think were worth much. And then the Assyrian method was to repopulate an area. 
with peoples from the lands that they had conquered. So you take these political rebels who are religiously confused and rebellious, and now you add in a mixed race or races. So this whole land is looked down upon by the Jews of Judea as rebels, as half-breeds, as heretics. So why does the text say Jesus had to go there? It's not because he was afraid of the Pharisees, not because he wasn't strong enough to make the journey another way to take a different route. It's because Jesus had a divine appointment. He knew his Father's will was for him to go through Samaria, and not just go through Samaria, but to come to this place at this time, this well. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, yet also fully human, had been walking for about six hours. And he was tired, and he was thirsty. But I think he went there specifically to meet this woman. He stationed himself on the side of the well, in an area that she couldn't miss him and couldn't avoid him. He's graciously intentional. Now let's look at this next section to see Jesus as graciously relational. Starting in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A Samaritan woman at the well, which might not seem unusual, except that she was by herself. Instead of being with a group of women, which would have been the custom. And it was the middle of the day, not the beginning or the end when it was much more likely to be cool. Because these buckets, when full, generally weighed about 40 pounds. Much easier to deal with that in the morning or in the cool evening. So both her time of arrival and the fact that she's alone means that she's likely an outcast of this village. And she finds herself at the well with a Jewish man, which is another barrier. Not only is he Jewish, he's a man. Men and women would not speak to each other in public. So Jesus, not only tired, apparently he's thirsty, he asked for a drink. Then after she reminds Jesus they really shouldn't be talking, in verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living, living water. He's not put off by all the racial, cultural, or religious barriers, not to mention the chasm of sin that separates him from this Samaritan woman. He is graciously relational. Now, this is the first time John uses the term living water which normally would be flowing or moving water, not the stagnant or still water that would sit in a cistern. In fact, John is the only author to use this term 
in all of the New Testament. He uses it here, he uses it in John 7 and Revelation 7. But Jacob's well was not the typical well or cistern that held only still water. It was kind of both. It had been dug out, it was very deep, went down about at least 100 feet, but at the bottom of it was a spring, living water, flowing water. So the woman looks at Jesus and says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw the water. The woman is still thinking in physical terms, obviously, she, which are really her secondary needs. She wants to know where this living water is and how Jesus, who's obviously ill-equipped to get water 100 feet below the surface, is going to get it for her. And she says she wants it for two reasons. One, she doesn't want to thirst again, and she doesn't want to have to come to the well every day and lug that water back to her home. But Jesus has something else in mind when he talks about the living water that the woman doesn't understand. See, the Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. So she likely had never read Jeremiah 2.13 that says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. She didn't realize that living water was a spiritual metaphor in the Old Testament for the abundant, loving kindness of God, His grace. And that His people had instead of relying on that living water, had relied on themselves, their own source of fulfillment. They dug their own cisterns, and those cisterns didn't hold water. There are five important things about this water Jesus is offering that we should know today. The first, in verse 10, is we see that this water is a gift from God. You don't earn it is something graciously given to you. In fact, not only do you not earn it, you don't deserve it. The second is this water is living, which in chapter 7, John will explicitly say this living water is the Holy Spirit, the very presence and power of God living in those who believe. The third is that if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. So why is Jesus asking for a drink? Is he really not thirsty and he's just asking just to start the conversation? I don't think that's what that means. I think what it means is this. If you drink deeply from this living water, you experience that type of thirst quenching. 
nothing else ever satisfies you. You won't desire, you won't thirst after the lesser things. More, you'll enjoy that more than the sinful idols that you pursue instead of turning to God. Instead, we reach for sex or money or job performance or power or possessions. Nothing satisfies, nothing quenches our thirst like truly tasting and experiencing the gracious love of the Lord. Fourth, this water brings eternal life. Life everlasting without condemnation. Life forever with freedom without fear, an eternity without pain and suffering, an eternity worshiping perfectly and unashamedly. And finally, fifth, if you drink this grace water, it does something that no other water does. It creates in you a fountain of grace. Instead of sitting still in us, hoarded, for us alone, it spills out. The Greek word here literally means to leap out, to spill out. It's not for you to hoard. It's yours to give away freely and abundantly and generously. So here's a picture of what that will look like one day. And I think this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about this living water. The Samaritan woman didn't know because she had never read Zechariah 14.8 that says on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea it shall continue in summer as in winter and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day the Lord will be one and his name one and she had not read Ezekiel 47 that pointed to a future time of blessing when the water flowing from Jerusalem would be flowing from the temple be flowing from the temple all the way down to the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. Ezekiel 47 says, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And skipping down to verse 10, Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Inaglam, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. So there's good news here for those of us who like to fish. Apparently there's going to be fishing in eternity, but that's not all of the good news here. There are two striking things about this living water that I believe Jesus is referring back to. And the first is how much water we're talking about. When we visited Israel a couple of years ago, we stood at En Gedi, referenced here in Ezekiel, and we looked down at the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. And En Gedi, at its highest point, is 700 feet above sea level. And the engineer geek in me was trying to calculate how much water that is what it would look like to have 2,000 feet of water sitting on top of the Dead Sea. 
I couldn't do it. I'm just telling you, that is an awful lot of water. And the second thing that's striking about this water is its transforming power. The Dead Sea, sometimes referred to as a salt sea, is so salty that no fish live in there. It's ten times saltier than a normal sea or ocean. And what we see is that a day is coming where that Dead Sea will be brought to life. Just as the living water Jesus refers to in John 4 will bring life to those who believe. One of the things we learned while we were in Israel is the Dead Sea is actually drying up. So it's not uncommon. The Jordan feeds into the Dead Sea. More people live around the Jordan. They're pulling water out, and uh, the Dead Sea is shrinking. And so there's this multi-government, multi-billion dollar project underway that some call the Ezekiel Project. And the purpose of this project is to build an underground pipeline to take water from the Mediterranean Sea and bring it down to the Dead Sea. And surprise, surprise, the best place to do that actually brings the pipe down through Jerusalem. But why are they doing that? Are they doing that to bring glory to the Lord, to try and fulfill the promises of Ezekiel 47? No, they're doing it so that the Dead Sea doesn't go dry and ruin their mineral and tourism and cosmetic business. Because apparently, a Dead Sea facial makes you look young. Now, no one said, hey, Fritz, you just got back from Israel. You look much younger. So I don't think it really works. But there's a whole industry built around taking Dead Sea mud and importing it to other, or exporting it to other parts of the world. And I think all of this is a very sad metaphor for man trying to do what only God can do. So the best man could do, the best these governments can do, the best billions and billions and billions of dollars can do is to make the Dead Sea still dead. Still full of salt. And the best we can do is to use some mud to make a facial that might make us look younger or healthier for just a little while. So the Samaritan woman has missed Jesus' point that he was making about her real needs, her primary need, which is a relationship with him. So let's pick up this dialogue in verse 16 where we now see Jesus as the gracious revealer. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, which is plural, 
Jews say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. Which seems like a really abrupt transition from verse 15, where the woman says, give me this living water so I don't have to come here. And the Greek word used here for here is an unusual one. It's not the one we normally would use or see. And I think Jesus knows that it's not just the physical effort to come here each day and get water. It's that the woman comes in the middle of the day because of her shame. Her shame over five failed marriages. She doesn't come when the other women would come at the beginning or the end of the day because they probably look down on her. Probably talk about her. They exclude her. She just can't deal with that. So Jesus cuts straight to the issue that weighs her down and excludes her and asks about her husband. I think it's interesting that she later says that Jesus told her all that she has ever done because I'm pretty sure that there are more than 12 Greek words to describe everything this woman had ever done. But those are the things she identified with. And Jesus, the living word, like the written word, is able to surgically cut so deep, as the writer of Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus is a gracious revealer. So this woman is smart, clever, and evasive. She answers truthfully, but in a way to hide what's really happening in her life. Jesus graciously commends her for her truthfulness, but then shows that he knows much more about her by pointing out that she's had five husbands and is working on number six. And yet, Jesus doesn't condemn her. And then she tries to pull the, hey, look over there trick to deflect kind of the popular theological question of the day. Deflect away from her sin, away from something that's personal, towards something that is impersonal. Not that we would ever do something like that. And that question of the day was, where should you worship? Because about 150 years earlier, the Jews had torn down the Samaritan temple there at Mount Gerizim. Probably the original site in view of this very well. Because the Jews believed that the only place you could properly worship God was in Jerusalem. So in the same way that Jesus pointed out her real problem wasn't being thirsty, he now points out that her question is the wrong one. It's soon to be irrelevant, moot. The Jews and the Samaritans will both have it wrong. Jesus is graciously revealing the truth. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming... And it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So the hour is coming. Coming. Which in verse 21 likely refers to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It will wipe out the place the Jews worship. But then he points out that a proper understanding of God is essential to real worship. The Samaritans, as I said earlier, only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So they miss out a lot of who God is, and they miss out on a lot of his plan for salvation. And Jesus contrasts the ignorance of the Samaritans with the knowledge of the Jews. Who the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9.4, To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. But what God has revealed about himself was expanding. If we look back at the first chapter of John, he described it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Which is what Jesus refers to in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people. John, writing the words of Jesus, later puts it clearly in 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if what you know about God, about the Father doesn't include recognizing Jesus as the Son, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Savior, then you are not worshiping the true, the fullest picture of who God is. If you miss Jesus, the Messiah, you miss God. And it's not the location that you worship. God is spirit. It's the person who you worship that is important. And look at the end of verse 23. The Father is seeking true worshipers. The hour is here at a well in unclean Samaria. A half-breed, rebel, heretic, serial, adulterer, and God is seeking her graciously, patiently, lovingly like he's done with all of us. But how does she respond? Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So this rebel heretic, she dropped her bucket and went to tell her neighbors. She was distracted from her original problem, which was needing water, and rushes to tell and look. And what does she say? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. 
Doesn't that sound awesome? Come see a man who tells you everything you've ever done wrong. It'd be like if we set up an x-ray machine here, and as you walked into the congregation, we all saw a picture of your dark, shriveled, Grinch-like heart. Or we could go like Matrix. We could plug something into the back of your head, and we could put up on the big screen here your thought life for the last week. How does that sound? Not a great church growth strategy, I'm sure. You know, I tried that once in a sermon. I didn't actually stick a cord in anybody's head. And I didn't do it here. I did it at a church that's never invited me back to preach. So what I did is in this very first sermon ever preached, I said, I got to a point in the sermon, I said, okay, here's what I want us to do. I want us to all confess the sin that we struggle with the most, audibly. And so I said, okay, let's go. And it was just like this. No one said a word. Crickets. So why does the woman respond this way, if that's so hard for us? You told me everything I did. I think it's the liberty and the freedom and the acceptance that she is experiencing for the first time by being truly known and yet not rejected. Maybe for the first time in her life, truly known and truly loved. You know, as you read a story, it's likely you begin to identify with a character. And as you read this story, I hope you identify more with this woman than with Jesus. By that I mean, I hope you haven't put yourself in the place of superiority. Looking down at this woman, half-breed, heretic, serial adulterer, think, I might be bad, but I'm not that bad. I don't want you to be like the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, who standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That I'm not an extortioner, unjust, an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. Because I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But as Christians in our culture, that is so easy for us to do. At least it's easy for me to do. To put on a smile and pretend that everything is okay. It's like the Christian version of the Lego movie. With everyone walking around singing, Everything is awesome. What would church be like if you asked someone how they were doing, and instead of them saying, everything is awesome, they said, well, I had a fight with my wife, and I yelled at my kids on the way to church, and it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. I've already blown it. What kind of church would that be? Because here's what I know, and I'm not the omniscient Jesus. That happened to some of you this morning. And it could have happened to me if I hadn't left before all my kids woke up. 
Now, I'm not encouraging us to be a church full of fighting spouses and discouraged, beaten-down kids. But I am encouraging us to be a church that because we are known by Jesus and known by each other in community and to know that we have the liberty, the freedom to confess our struggles and shortcomings to one another so that we can be recipients of that fountain of grace that is pouring out, that is bubbling out of each one of us. Fountains of grace, not fountains of shame or judgment, superiority or exclusion. So what happens here at the well? How does the story end? It ends with Jesus as gracious Savior. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. I want to make three observations about these verses and then try and land our plane this morning. The first is the testimony of this woman, this sinner, caused by God's grace many of her neighbors to believe, which highlights one of the dangers of isolation and segregation and separateness in our society. The relational isolation because you're too ashamed or too embarrassed about your past to tell anyone about who you really were. And when you do that, it makes it awfully hard for God to use your story of what He is doing in your life to bring you closer to Him. The second observation is that although her testimony was persuasive to many, many more were persuaded to believe because of the Word of God. Which is why every time we gather at Bethel, whether it's leadership training, a life group, a staff meeting, worship, we open God's Word believing that He speaks to us through that this day. And it's also why when it comes to evangelism, there is no substitute for the actual Word of God in proclaiming the Gospel. Not your paraphrase, the very words of God. The third observation is that while it's not certain the woman ever came to faith, it is clear that many of her fellow Samaritans did because they recognized Jesus not just as the prophet, but as the Savior of the world. And that although salvation is from the Jews, it's not just for the Jews. It's from the Jews in that, as Paul writes in Romans 9, 5, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. So what do we do with all of this, this story? Let me see if I can answer that question and wrap this up for us. Let me do it in three steps or kind of three asks. Drink the water, drop the bucket, 
dispense grace. By drink the water, I mean accept Jesus' offer of living water, of eternal life. My prayer is that if there's someone here today or someone listening online who has never known the satisfaction of Jesus' grace water, that they would know that today and that our passage would show us and show them that there is no place they can go, there is no sin too great, there is no state of unworthiness that Jesus cannot cross over and reach. He is seeking you to find you. He opens his arms and says, I know you. I created you. I know what you've done. All of it. And I love you still. And if you recognize your need for Him and call on Him as Savior, believing that He truly is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who died in our place, really buried for three days, dead, and yet rose again, and today is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you believe that, and if you trust in that to make you right with God, that you have eternal life. Not because you've done something to earn it, not because you deserve it, but in spite of those things. Drink the water. Next, drop the bucket. And this is for all of us. Whatever you're doing to satisfy your thirst apart from God, whatever you're doing to fill that hole in your heart, to make you feel significant, to make you feel important, to make you feel loved and accepted, to give purpose to your life, drop it. It's the best thing you could ever do. Drink the water. Drop the bucket. Dispense grace. Which means you have to be around people. For some of us, that's hard. Be around believers. Be around future believers. Show them that grace, that overflowing, bubbling up, leaping out of your life, living water grace. Because that's what God has done for you. Get out of your spiritual terlingua. Be known. Get to know others and tell the story of what God has done. Let's pray. Father, your word is living.